Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On January 20th, 2017, thousands of people converged on Washington, D.C. because a new president was being inaugurated. But ask yourself what sounds like kind of a stupid question. How did they know an inauguration was going on that day? Well, presidential inaugurations have been taking place on January 20th for almost a century now. And they happen like clockwork every four years. You could have found that info in newspapers, online, in magazines, in books. You could have planned four years to show up on January 20th and witness someone being inaugurated as president. The next day, January 21st, thousands of people again converged on Washington, D.C., but this time it was for the Women's March, which was most prominent in D.C., but of course it also happened all over the world. So same question, how did people know about it? The answer is very different. Just a couple of months before, in the wake of President Trump's election, several people started Facebook pages and they encouraged friends to march on Washington in protest. The fact that millions of people around the world heeded that call says a lot about the power of social media to organize. But whether protests have any real teeth, like any staying power beyond that initial burst of excitement, is an open question. Zainab Tufekshi is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, and she's the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So as I was talking about these big, uh, pro- this big protest in January, there have always been these major marches with big political impact. But I wonder, can you talk about the difference between something like the 1963 March on Washington, and then the 2017 Women's March, which was also in Washington. Like, what were the differences? And in that basically 50 years, what has changed in terms of organizing people? Well, obviously, the similarities are clear, right? There are huge marches. Mm -hmm. There's great energy, lots of people. Uh, The big difference is what it took to organize the march. Uh, The 1963 March in Washington came after more than a decade of civil rights activism organizing movement building. And it took them six months to organize the march itself too. Mm. And it wasn't just an intensive effort during those six months. There was this enormous infrastructure that the civil rights movement had built over the years to get to the place where they could even think about holding that kind of march and pull it off. And I know like it's in our history books right now, so it might seem like oh, it was just a march, but it was a really difficult one. Hmm. They couldn't even let people stay overnight in D.C. because back then you could not guarantee the safety of hundreds of thousands of people hmm. coming together, mixed race, marching against racism, and have them stay overnight in D.C. and expect all of them to be safe. So they had to bring all those people in And they had to get them out and Mm. have everything work. And, you know, at the last minute, their sound system was sabotaged. There were all sorts of issues they had to deal with. Now, contrast that with the Women's March, which also is a big march, pretty much the same area. The difference is, instead of being almost like the culmination of movement building, the Women's March is perhaps the first step mm-hmm. of movement building, mm-hmm. right? Because it started with a Facebook post, and then a couple of people get together. And then, obviously, the organizers put in a lot of work. I don't mean to say that these marches aren't you know, a lot right, of work. Right. But compared to the past, they're not 10 years of work to get mm-hmm. to that point. They're a couple of months of work to get to that point. And back then, 
if the media wasn't friendly to you or if you didn't have a really intensive organization getting the word out, you couldn't get the word out easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, you know, a hashtag here and a Facebook group there and boom, you can go viral and have that out. So this it appears as if I'm telling this big story of empowerment through digital media. And I kind of am, right? It is really empowering mm -hmm. to be able to hold that big march so quickly. But it comes with disempowering aspects. And one of the biggest ones is, I mean, think of it like you've got a car and you're going from zero to 100 miles in three seconds. But you're actually building the car at the same time. You don't really have the steering wheel, the decision-making committee, the leadership, all those things. You barely know place. each other. I mean, this is like a get-to-know-you march. Right. It's right. exactly right. You got to know people. That's fine. You could get to know them over time. And, you know, that's a plausible path. But you have to make very important, fraught decisions immediately. Mm -hmm. Right? So you're already at 100 miles an hour. Right? You're already... You know, you're protesting an administration, you're very large, and things are moving, happening every day. And you don't have necessarily the kind of sort of network building and organizational building and infrastructure building that you could have had to make if you didn't have, you know, Twitter and Facebook groups. Right, right. I think it's actually really interesting that, as you say, like the 1963 march in Washington was not really necessarily about um, galvanizing people. It was like saying, we've been doing this work on civil rights for years in small ways all over the country, you know, in these ways that maybe passed unnoticed. But here, we're going to make you, the public, the government, notice it. You know, like this, this is this is the culmination and that is so different from the Women's March. And with the Women's March, I remember people being interviewed on television, walking away saying, this inspired me. I'm going to go do something now. Like, I want to run for office or I want to contribute or I want to volunteer. Like, this is a good first step. Right. So today's marches, uh, large marches like this, are absolutely, they operate exactly what you said. They operate as very good first steps. They mm -hmm. energize people. They give them direction. You get to know lots of people who think like you. The open question is, will those people do everything else? Because that takes time. Mm -hmm. And the second open question is, will they be able to do it in time? Because, um, I mean, let's think about the U.S. context, right? Uh, the obvious next point for the United States uh, political situation is the 2000. Uh, 18 midterm elections, right, right? Exactly. It may well be that people are a little blinded by the sizes of the marches. But what I try to tell people is that I study social movements and internet, right? And I think the internet has kind of put springs to your feet mm -hmm. if you're talking about the march. You can jump really high with those springs when it comes to marching. But they're jumping on a trampoline. And they're going to get off that trampoline and they're going to have to, you know, run a marathon. And in the past, if I saw them jump that high, I might have said, yeah, they'll probably run that marathon. Whereas right now, I don't know. It's an open question. You've pointed out that when the Tea Party uh, got inspired about 10 years ago and held protests, which also happened to be the same time that the Occupy movement was out there holding protests, um, that the Tea Party ended up with over a billion dollars to organize primary challenges, whereas we're not looking at anywhere near that kind of money so far to left-leaning groups. 
How do you think that happened? So just to compare how these things fared, what happened with the Tea Party movement is twofold. One, it was a very electorally focused movement. They didn't just protest. They got together very quickly in various locales. And they're like, how do we ask our congressperson? How do mm-hmm. we primary the Republican? In fact, researchers found they were almost like political scientists. They knew ins and outs of political legislature and, and all that stuff very well. Why? And there's a lot of things they were missing. Well, because they wanted to change and block various laws. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to re- really laser focus on They were misinformed on a bunch of stuff. But how to make sure that bill gets stuck in committee? They knew that up and down. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that happened to them is a very sort of sympathetic billionaire stepped up Hmm. and gave him lots of money and guidance. So if you want to sort of look at the 2016 version of this, in just just 2016, just one year, uh, most recent year, just the co-brothers who uh, helped fund the Tea Party movement, they spent about a billion dollars, that's billion with a B as in boy, on down-ballot races, up and down the ballot in the United States. And down-ballot is really important because that's infrastructure. That's local infrastructure. That's what's going to get you the presidential race later, too. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Zainab Tufekshi, author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, the Arab Spring, which was this huge protest movement that was aided by technology, swept through parts of the Middle East several years ago. And in particular, this thought that people had that was like, you know, wow, this is protest. This is change. Uh, But governments ultimately were able to thwart the technology, often thwart the protests. And in the end, protesters did not really win the day. So when I look at the public sphere now, you know, six years after the Arab Spring, Arab uprisings, what I see around the world is that governments have figured out that they can't really block information. It's gotten really hard. Mm. And even if you're China, you know, there's hundreds of millions of netizens there. And they would be able to overpower the censorship apparatus if they were really motivated to do so. I mean, it's kind of hard. You can put a lot of resources in censorship, but even in the extreme case, it takes an enormous amount of resources, and it's only that much effective if the people are motivated. Right. But what you can do, if you can't block the information from getting to people, you can keep the information from being empowering. You can break the link between information and action by challenging the credibility of the information. Uh-huh. And we've seen this with Russia. We've seen this with Russia. Russia is one of the innovators in this space. Mm-hmm. China does this professionally. They have a professional so-called 50-cent army. Uh, allegedly, they were paid 50 cents for posts, but that probably isn't true, but the name stuck. So what they do is they uh, create distractions around sensitive anniversaries or political moments. So if there's something going on, that's important and that people are trying to pay attention and dissidents are like, oh, look over here. This sort of hundreds of thousands of people who are kind of coordinated secretly, they come and say, oh, look, here's something else. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what that something else is. It could be some movie stars having an affair. It doesn't matter. Anything that captures people's attention means that 
there's going to be less attention, which is oxygen to movements, going to this other thing. Yeah, so there's all these things. How, how did you first become interested in technologically fueled protests? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. I mean, the obvious answer is I'm from Turkey. And I grew up under the 1980 military coup. I was a child then. And you know how they say Eskimos have lots of words for snow? I don't know if it's true or not. Well, in Turkey, we have lots of words for coups. We have so (laughs) many kinds that we Mm. distinguish them Mm. uh, by nature. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you have snow, you have flurries, you have, you know, this, that, sleet. We have so many coups, unfortunately, that we have we distinguish them. And 1981 was a particularly harsh one. It was a military dictatorship, and it was very heavy censorship, and you couldn't get any news. There was one TV channel, right? So this is just, you know, you had little ass on the prairie all the time and things like that, which made no really? sense. Really? Did you really watch Little House yes. on the Prairie? And not only did I watch it, like we all knew Laura Ingalls and the, all the people. <laughs> I watched that when I was a kid too. But I know. And we couldn't make heads or sense out too. of it because, you know, in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey, like there is no frontier because... <laughs> there's no middle of nowhere. Right? You dig right. and you just form more empires underneath where you are. And you right. dig more, you run into right. a Neolithic village. Like the idea that there'd be places that were relatively sparsely unoccupied just didn't make any sense, even right. if you sort of uh, ignore the fact that the indigenous people were also there in the right, United right, States. Right. But compared to the Middle East, even that's a recent development. And I, I, I got a job as a computer programmer really early on, like first year of college, I was already working. In fact, first semester of college, I started working uh, as a programmer. And one of the things that happened early on is um, I worked at IBM, and IBM had an intranet. And that's a network that's internal to the company. Mm. And a lot of companies have them. The thing is, I got a sense of that intranet before I even experienced the internet because the internet hadn't yet come to Turkey. Mm. It took some time. And all of a sudden, you know, you could just sort of go home and there's a single channel and, <laughs> you know, irrelevant stuff and you can't make sense of what's going on. And then I could go to work and have unfettered communication with IBM employees around the world. And as soon, and then the internet came to Turkey, and I was like, sign me up, give me that modem, <laughs> and, and the rest is the book. Yeah. Zainab Tufekci is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina. She's also the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. We spoke with Tefekshi last June. The elections earlier this month, which saw Democratic governors elected in Virginia and New Jersey and Democrats picking up a whole lot of seats in Virginia state legislature, that may indicate that the protests earlier this year could actually be influencing politics. But we're going to get a lot more data in 2018. 